It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It is Monday, November 30th, 2009. Hopefully you've recovered from your post-turkey food coma. And you are working your way, hopefully, through the turkey leftovers. Personally, I had a fantastic, ridiculously great Thanksgiving. But I'll keep the details of that close to my chest. It's Anyway, it's a family thing. Uh, anyway, I uh, hope you all are doing well. Glad to be back behind the microphone. A little bit of an extended... Uh, Time off for me there. It, uh, it, it t- took some time off to uh, do Thanksgiving, to spend time uh, with family and do the things that needed to be done. And it's it just a great, 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 fantastic holiday. Couldn't have asked for a better one. And uh, in just by way of, uh, <clears throat> I guess I could say this on the air. Uh, my son, is uh, he, he got engaged o- over the Thanksgiving uh, holiday. And uh, he, he is engaged to, um, well, it's, it's a long story, to a fine young Christian lady from Minnesota, of all places. And uh, you all remember from time to time I've talked about uh, that if you're going to ask to be my friend on Facebook, that uh, don't you're not allowed to ask me to uh, babysit your children. Yeah, that that's one of the standing rules now. Well, that all came about as a result of one of my listeners. Her name is uh, Susan Grotty. And uh, Susan Grotty, she uh, she lives in Minnesota. And uh, anyway, she, who asked a radio guy to babysit her children? By the way, she has uh, 11 of them. <laughs> uh, is it 12? 11? She has a lot of them. She has a gaggle. I think that that's the correct word. Well, long story short, um, uh, Susan and I have been corresponding on Facebook and and thought that uh, that uh, my oldest son and her oldest daughter were actually kind of nerdy in the same way and that they would probably make a good match. And so we pitched it to them as an arranged marriage and <laughs> and it worked. I, 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 I am not kidding. It's just the craziest thing. And these two are like peanut butter and jelly, and and my son has completely gone gaga for this girl, and I think it's uh, mutual. She's gone gaga for him. So anyway, uh, over the uh, over the holiday, uh, my son proposed to uh, to Jasmine Grotty, and uh, there you go. <laughs> well, that's the long and the short. That's all I'm going to talk about it. And it, it was an arranged marriage. And I got to tell you, I'm becoming I'm becoming a, a a believer, a firm believer in arranged marriages. Just that's kind of the takeaway I'm taking from this. It changes the whole game. I'm just I'm telling you, it changes everything. And rather than parents sitting hopelessly on the sideline, wringing their hands and going, "Oh, I hope that everything turns out," and "Oh, I can't stand that person," or "Oh, I hope they don't," no. <laughs> For whatever reason, the the arranged marriage thing um, um, changes the whole game. The parents are no, are no longer in a, basically sitting on the sideline. They become active uh, players on the field, if you would. They've got a skin in the game. That's probably the best way I can put it. So anyway, that's all the details I want to give about that. And uh, so there you have it. So it, it just uh, again it, that that's 
was kind of the focus of uh, my entire uh, Thanksgiving holiday. And uh, and so very happy and, and very proud to say that uh, my son, sometime in the next six months or so, I, I'm not sure how long the engagement's going to be, uh, it will be, uh, will be a married young man. So, and... Uh, and in some bizarre way, it is all because of that lady who asked me to babysit her children on Facebook. <laughs> it's the craziest story. I'm just telling. All right. So, okay. So that's not what we're going to talk about today, by the way, on the program. Uh, today's program, the first hour, uh, aside from that little bizarre bombshell that I, I dropped is going to be really dedicated to a single topic, a, this, a single topic. And, uh, and it's the Manhattan uh, declaration. Uh, Al Mohler, uh, kind of dropped a bomb, uh, uh, last week, last Monday, uh, when he published a, uh, a piece called why I signed the Manhattan declaration. And, uh, and it, it, there's controversy swirling around this document. You know, Al Mohler, Tim Keller, uh, and some very respectable, uh, Christian leaders have signed this document. And I have some friends, some, some people, near and dear friends who've actually signed on to the Manhattan Declaration. And, uh, there's, and, and then you've, and then on the other end of it, you've got, uh, John MacArthur basically publicly coming out and, and explaining why he didn't sign the document. And so we're going to take a look at the issues surrounding the Manhattan Declaration. If you're not familiar with it, um, it's a, a call of Christian conscience. It deals with a couple of very important, actually three primary uh, issues, uh, uh, the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, and I think religious freedom is the third. Hang on. Yeah, religious liberty is the third. And um, there's some merit to the Manhattan Declaration, but I thought I would chime in and we'll talk about the controversy. We'll look at the different sides of it. Uh, look a little bit at the document itself. If you would like to take a look at the entire document and read the entire thing, you can do so by going to ManhattanDeclaration.org. That's ManhattanDeclaration.org. But um, being being a confessional Lutheran, um, I I have a completely different take on this than a lot of people do. Uh, first of all, what the the, the 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 primary way I'm going to be evaluating this document is law and gospel. But second is uh, what we call, what we Lutherans refer to as the two kingdoms. Okay, and uh, this is in fact by way of doing some groundwork. Uh, and now I know we're going to be dealing with the Manhattan Declaration. I want to do some groundwork today because I think that we need to have some good biblical categories in place before we look at the Manhattan Declaration. And uh, so it's quick review on law and gospel, quick review, uh, well, a little bit more extended review on, on, the, on the two kingdoms. And I'm going to be reading a document that was actually put out by the Lutheran Church of Australia on their Commission on Social and Bioethical Questions regarding the Two Kingdoms. And uh, this was a document that was published uh, by the LCA in uh, 2001, and I think it does a very good job of, of basically laying out the synopsis of the Two Kingdoms, which, by the way, I think is a very good biblical way of at least 
categorizing the Manhattan document, the, uh, the Manhattan Declaration. Then we'll look at the Manhattan Declaration. We'll look at Al Mohler's uh, reasons as to why he signed it. And we're going to look at, uh, at John MacArthur and uh, the Pyromaniacs blog and their critiques on it. And kind of weigh in and, and just kind of look at this in light of law and gospel and the two kingdoms. And you're going, what are the two kingdoms? Glad you asked. I'm so, in fact, that's one of the things. Now, being, being a radio guy and having done this now, done radio now for, you know, the better part of, you know, what, a year and a half almost? Um, you know, I am no longer a, a freshman when it comes to radio. I'm actually a little bit more of a sophomore. If, <laughs> <sighs> All right. Anyway, you get what I'm the, the point I'm trying to make is, is that I can anticipate now what the questions are that you're asking. I just don't know why I could do that. But it apparently comes with d- doing radio for a little bit of time. And you're going, what are the two kingdoms? Now, if you're not familiar with the two kingdoms, you really, really need to listen carefully and uh, and get this. So um, and uh, so that's what's going to be happening on today's program. Lots and lots of ground to cover. It'll be educational. We'll try to have a little bit of fun along the way. And then in the second hour, when we do our sermon review, uh, somebody uh, on Facebook, you know, one of you, one of my listeners on Facebook was asking, how long before you think somebody does a sermon based on the Twilight movies? And uh, I, that sent me off and I found a, I, I found a sermon uh, that was done on the, on the first Twilight movie, the 2008 uh, uh, Twilight movie. And it was done by Overlake Church in Redmond, Washington. The uh, the pastor there is Mike Howerton. And uh, in reviewing, kind of preliminarily reviewing the sermon, uh, I got to tell you, uh, this guy, it's a mixed bag. You're ac- he actually, um, you will hear the gospel in the sermon. It's clearly proclaimed. The gospel is clearly proclaimed. And so uh, for this Twilight, uh, this sermon based on the Twilight movie, um, it, it, this is on the discernment scale. This one takes uh, a lot more skill and acumen. So this is not an easy one. I, on the scale of one to 10, one being the easiest to discern, 10 being the most difficult, definitely a clear seven, maybe 7.5. I just it's saying. So anyway, that's going to round out our program today. So make yourself comfortable. Uh, if you're, if you're at the gym trying to lose weight while listening to Fighting for the Faith, we have found that this is, you know, because the content of the program, you, you don't even realize you're exercising. I mean, that's how captivating this program can be. And so this is a fine way of losing weight, uh, in keeping your mind occupied while you're on the treadmill, especially when you're going up and down those hills. Um, or if you're on an elliptical, you know, that, just saying it works out really well. And if you're listening at home, and it's cool weather. Fuzzy bunny slippers absolutely do help enhance uh, your Fighting for the Faith listener experience, which, by the way, is very important to us. It's important that you have a positive listener experience while listening to Fighting for the Faith. And so with that in mind, we're going to dive into our program. No uh, no vintage muse, news music at this point because we're not doing news. We're going to start by just doing a quick review of law and gospel. Before we look at the Manhattan uh, Declaration, we're going to do law and gospel, and then I'm going to read to you a portion of the uh, Two Kingdoms document put out by the Lutheran Church of Australia. Fine synopsis of the Two Kingdoms, and uh, and then we'll look at the uh, the Declaration itself. So here we go, law and gospel. Okay, when we talk about the law here at Fighting for the Faith, we are talking about really you can summarize the law by looking at the Ten Commandments. 
Uh, you can talk about the law in its broader scope by looking at the Mosaic law as a whole. Uh, or you can boil it all down the way Jesus did. You can take a look at God's law. And it come, what does that come down to when you boil everything down? When you dehydrate the law, stick it in a dehydrator, what you're left with are love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Any any time where you are not loving God with all your heart and you're not loving your neighbor as yourself, you are falling short. You are missing the mark. Uh, therefore, you are sinning, and that behavior is uh, evil and damnable, and uh, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Just that's the way that works, okay? Now, when we talk about God's law, there are three primary purposes, okay? Three uses, three uses of, of the law. The first use is the use that comes into play as we look at the Manhattan Declaration. The first use of the law has to do with what uh, there's there's three the way you do it is curb mirror and rule okay first use of the law is the law is the way in which the law is used to regulate and govern society uh, so that people do not steal stuff murder each other and uh, and and basically allow their sinful natures to completely run amok to the point of anarchy okay first use of the law now that's the important use of the law when we look and evaluate the Manhattan Declaration. It's first use of the law because we're dealing with government. In fact, first use of the law is the use by which the government governs us. Okay, And one of the most important things you need to keep in mind when we look at the two kingdoms idea is that, um, that the government is not Satan's kingdom. God rules the world in two kingdoms. The kingdom of the left is the kingdom by which God governs the world through governments, through the use of the sword. And uh, and so keep that in mind. God, it's, it's not like governments are of the devil and Christians can't participate in them. No, God rules the entire world. And there is no authority that comes into being that isn't, doesn't, isn't sanctioned from God. Okay, so that's important. So first use of the law is the use used by the governments, uh, actually used by God to control people through governments is the best way to put it. Um, second use of the law is the use of the law that's a mirror that exposes your sins, shows your utter wretchedness, you, the inability to save yourself, and just how wretchedly short you come when it comes to uh, uh, obeying God. And it shows you, you basically it's prescriptive. It's it, it's prescri- it, well no no that's the, sorry wrong word it's not prescriptive it's um, diagnostic <laughs> the gospel is the prescription the gospel is the cure uh, it's, but the law is the diagnosis the law provides the diagnosis but the diagnosis is not the cure okay just got to keep that in mind so you don't use the law to fix the your your lawless problem that doesn't work uh, but the law diagnoses your problem as you falling short of the glory of God and and exposes you to be a wretched sinner in need of a savior. Okay, The third use of the law is only for Christians. Let me, <clears throat> let me reiterate that part. Uh, third use of the law is only for Christians. The third use of the law shows us what a good work is. Okay, it shows us what a good work is. Okay, so that we don't go off willy nilly trying to invent our own good works. 
Okay. An invented good work would be locking yourself up in a monastery and whipping yourself and scourging yourself. That is nowhere prescribed in the Bible as uh, as a good work. Okay. Uh, see, you see what I'm saying? So the third use of the law shows us what a good work is. It It doesn't give us the power to do it. But it shows us what a good work is, and when you look at the when and here's here's the loophole in third use of the law, if you would, there is a, if you look at the fine print on the third use of the law, and when you look at the third use of the law and you realize that you're not doing that good work, um, you then fall back automatically fall back into the second use of the law, which shows you your sinfulness and need for a savior. The goal, the prescription for that is the gospel, the good news: Christ died. For all of your sins, all of them, even when you're not doing good works, or even when you're not doing good works well, or you're you're not you're not doing as you think is enough, or you see what I'm saying here. So keep that in mind. Now that's our introduction to law and gospel. Now I could tell you already there's a problem in the Manhattan Declaration as it pertains to gospel. The reason why is because it doesn't clearly define it, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, The second set of categories that we have to keep in mind as we look at the Manhattan Declaration is we need to understand how God operates in two kingdoms, the kingdom of the left, the kingdom of the right, the kingdom of the left being governments, whereby God rules the world through governments and uses the law to basically curb evil and the kingdom of the right being the church. Okay. Two completely different kingdoms, two completely different ways in which they operate. And that being the case, let me, ex- let me read to you uh, some information regarding the two kingdoms uh, as it pertains to, uh, uh, you know, to this issue so that we can then better evaluate the Manhattan Declaration. Okay. Uh, so this is from the Lutheran Church of Australia. This is uh, called the Two Kingdoms, put out by the Commission on Social and Bioethical Questions. It's a fine, fine document. I'll put a link up to it up in the Pirate Christian Cove for those of you who are members of our Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. We read, when Pilate asked Jesus whether he was the king of the Jews, he replied by saying, my kingdom is not of this world. That's John chapter 8, 33, 36. Now, this statement has been the starting point of a long series of attempts to define the relation between Christians and the world, and indeed the church and the world. Do Christians have a right to self-defense or civil disobedience? Can they sue their neighbors? Can they serve in the army when God commands us not to kill and Christ commands us to love uh, the enemy? Can Christians take an oath in a court of law when Christ forbids all swearing? Is it ever legitimate for Christians to take part in a plan to overthrow the government? Should our church speak out publicly on social issues? Should our church ever align itself with a particular political party or position, for example, on matters like uh, like a treaty with the indigenous people of this land, the, that this would be Australia, the aboriginal reconciliation, the republic debate, the gam- gambling, legislation of prostitution, etc.? It's not our intention to direct to directly answer any of these questions, 
for some of them have no simple answer. Now, and th- th- this is important. This One of the reasons why I chose this document is because it was written by Aussies, uh, Lutheran Aussies, rather than American Aussies. It, it, I like that because it gets us out of the United States po- uh, politic for a minute and li- t- allows us to look then with, without much bias uh, at at this doctrine of the two kingdoms, okay? But there are guiding principles to help us and our church think through these issues and to come to a decision. Now, one of these guiding principles is Luther's, Martin Luther's distinction between the two kingdoms or the two reigns, uh, or the two reigns of God, the earthly or the left-hand kingdom and the heavenly or right-hand kingdom. It basically aims to do three things. One, to help Christians live as God's people in a fallen and sinful world. It says that you do not need to renounce the world and live in a monastery in order to be holy, for the world is God's world, and it is good in spite of human sin, because God created it good. Two, to make it clear that although God is love and rules his church by love and the forgiveness of sins, he cannot rule the unbelieving world by love, but needs the force of the law to prevent wicked people from destroying the world and its order and hurting others. Three, to guide the church in its relations with the world, especially government, so that it's, it understands its mission in the world to preach the gospel and to pray for all people in authority, as well as its responsibility to speak out against government whenever necessary. The two kingdoms doctrine does not call for a separation of church and state, but for a proper distinction between them. In a nutshell, the doctrine of the two kingdoms and the two reigns of God teaches that God is the ruler of the world and that he does and that he rules the world in two ways. He rules all people, Christians and non-Christians, in his earthly kingdom through the agency of secular government, hence through the law. For example, by means of the sword or by force. Conversely, God rules all Christians in his spiritual kingdom and hence the uh, hence the church with his right hand through the gospel for example the means of grace this uh, will be explained in more detail as i continue to read here so the distinction between the two kingdoms is really only a corollary of the proper distinction between the law and the gospel now here are the key biblical texts What is the biblical basis of the claim that God rules the earthly kingdom through the agency of secular government? According to the New Testament, all lawful authority has been established by God. Jesus himself teaches this when he says to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who condemned him to death, you would have no power over me unless it had been given to you from above. John chapter 19 verse 11. Government has been given the right to use the power of the sword to coerce obedience and to punish evil. Important passages here are Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, Exodus chapter 21, verse 14. So the two classical texts that deal with God-given authority of the state are Romans 3, 1 through 5, 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14. 
earthly authority goes beyond the state to include parents also, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, as well as others in positions of responsibility, for example, pastors and teachers. So when Luther explains the fourth commandment in his large catechism, that's the fourth commandment, by the way, the Lutherans count it, is honor your father and mother. Uh, So when Luther explains the fourth commandment, he says that the primary locus of authority resides with parents and that all other human authority derives from that. From that point of view, the authority of the state has its source in the authority vested in parents. When Paul then in Romans 13.1 says, There is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God, he is stating that secular government has been established by God. Luther simply points out that God establishes it in the fourth commandment. If all lawful authority has been established by God and has his approval, what about unlawful authority? Here we must remember that the New Testament also knows of the demonization of the state as powerfully portrayed in the beast in Revelation chapter 13, which presents a situation that is the exact opposite of Romans 13. The unlawful authority of the demonic state is most evident in the absolute claims made on body and soul by the satanic forces behind totalitarian regimes. Here the church must refuse obedience in line with Peter's principle in Acts chapter 5 verse uh, 29, uh, basically even if that means martyrdom, for obedience here would amount to idolatry. We obey God rather than men, Peter states in Acts chapter 5 verse 29. Okay, Uh, Martyrs and confessors of the church in all ages have never forgotten the words of Psalm 119, verse 46, which states, I will also speak of your testimony before kings and shall not be put to shame. Obedience to all forms of human government is never absolute, but always limited and conditional. If it means disobedience to God, our allegiance to God must come first. When Jesus commands us to give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, the implication is that God has the right to claim us in our totality because we bear his image. Jesus says his kingdom is not of this world. Although we live in the world, our true commonwealth is in heaven. Philippians chapter 3 verse 19. Since we are in the world, but not of the world, we must not let the world squeeze us into its mold. Uh, Romans 12, 2 comes to mind here. Peter can say that we are aliens and exiles because we are on a journey to our heavenly homeland. Although on earth we are subject to the laws of the land, we are called to freely follow the example of Jesus who did not seek revenge, but willingly suffered injustice and oppression. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us to forego our rights, to turn the other cheek, and to go the second mile. The final text that we need to consider takes up what is called John the Baptist's social teaching. The prophet John answered several questions that people asked him in relation to their vocation. 
To the tax collectors, John said, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Soldiers also asked him what they should do. He replied, do not exhort, extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. The significance of this text is, that's by the way, Luke chapter 3 verses 10 through 14. The significance of this text is that nowhere does John say that the people of God cannot engage in ordinary secular jobs. In fact, it is significant that it is precisely tax collectors and soldiers who are who are singled out for special mention, since these people were involved in two of the most questionable occupations at the time of Jesus. The only qualification that John the Baptist makes and that the church has always made is that the work we do must be honest and lawful. On the strength of John's social teaching in the New Testament generally, we cannot agree with the Anabaptists of Luther's day and other such sects today who claim that Christians cannot serve as soldiers and cannot be involved in certain other, in certain secular activities. Scripture teaches that we serve God by serving our neighbor in our vocation and places of responsibility in the world. So Luther's distinction between the two kingdoms and two reigns of God helps Christians to understand how they can live by Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount and at the same time be responsible citizens in this world until he comes again. For when he returns, there will be no longer two kingdoms, but only the one kingdom, the kingdom of glory and grace, which for now is hidden in Christ and known only by faith. All right, I'm going to pause right there, and we're going to go to our first break. And when we come back, I'm going to continue uh, laying some groundwork here on the two kingdoms, and then we're going to take a look at the controversies swirling around the Manhattan Declaration and try to provide a good, sober, non-emotional, if you would, evaluation of this, the Manhattan Declaration. And keep in mind, there's some very, very prominent and I th- highly respected Christians who have signed on to the Manhattan Declaration, most notably uh, a, a man whom I, who, who I love as a Christian brother and love his work, Al Mohler, uh, the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. So uh, when we get back from our break, we'll continue along these lines. So if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. And if you'd like to be my friend on Facebook, it's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there again, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. 
drink. Do you want to feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst. Holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical storm. Sound the alarm. You're going to be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. <laughs> You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy. These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And you're like, no. And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You have so much holiness, holiness. Ah. Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power spawning, Chester. You have so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies, they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gamble on your afterlife. Jesus. Try Bible thirst. The energy that will make you uh, holy. What if the entire resurrection was a hoax? Well, that's the premise of the book, A Skeleton in God's Closet. Written by Paul L. Meyer, the story is about Dr. Jonathan Weber, a Harvard professor and biblical scholar who's looking forward to a sabbatical year on an archaeological dig in Israel. But a spectacular find that seems to be an archaeologist's dream come true becomes a nightmare that could be the death rattle of Christianity. This book is carefully researched and compellingly written. A Skeleton in God's Closet explores the tension between doubt and faith, science and religion, and one man's determination to find the truth no matter what the cost. Said Paul Erdman of the New York Times, with a skeleton in God's closet, Paul Meyer has created a new genre, the theological thriller. It reads like Robert Ludlum while expertly exploring the origins of Christianity. It's a superb book. A Skeleton in God's Closet is available at piratechristianradio.com. It's right there on the homepage. It's available for $14.99 plus $4.95 shipping and handling. And all proceeds support the ongoing work of Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com and get your copy of A Skeleton in God's Closet today. Morning. Listening to this program could raise your theological IQ. And doing that could cause you to stand out in a Bible study or a crowd. I'm just just saying. Anyway, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. Although we offer Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio to the world for free, it is not it only costs us money to actually produce fighting for the faith, and bring it to you as well as Pirate Christian Radio. So right now, we are asking you, with, listen, it's the holiday time. Can you? I cannot think of a better gift to give than the gift of fighting for the faith in Pirate Christian Radio. And the, way you, the easiest way you could do that is to join our Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Real simple. It's a mere $6.95 a month. I, I, mean, I mean that. Mere. It's, what is $6.95? It's, 
it's two and a half gallons of gas a month. That's what we're talking about here. It's not a huge sacrifice on your part. And once we get to a thousand members, uh, then at least we ensure that we're able to meet our day-to-day operating expenses. And so as we approach the end of the year, this is a good time for you to join the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. The way you do it is to visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button and uh, fill out all the information there online. And then shortly, within a a few days, you should receive an email from cove at piratechristianradio.com. So set your spam filter so that it doesn't block that. Uh, With a link uh, and uh, login information to our secret Pirate Christian Radio Cove, which is a growing treasure trove of theological resources designed to help you go deeper in God's Word and uh, good doctrine and theology. Fantastic stuff. In fact, this... uh, uh, this document here on the two kingdoms from Lutheran Church of Australia, I'll be putting up a, a link to it at the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio Cove. So again, go to fightingforthefaith.com, click on Join Our Crew, do it today, and uh, you'll be you'll actually be happy that you did because uh, you'll be supporting what we're doing and, and be basically partnering with us as we continue to bring biblical discernment, sound doctrine, Christian apologetics, and Christ-centered, cross-focused theology to the world. And, uh, of course, if you'd like to donate a flat amount, uh, you can and uh, by clicking on the Donate button or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right. In, in, keep in mind, we're talking about the Manhattan Declaration right now, but I'm doing some biblical foundation work. Uh, in talking about uh, what we, we, what we Lutherans refer to as the two kingdoms. And I want to continue on this before I get to the document itself, which means that we're definitely going to be talking well into the second hour of the program on the Manhattan Declaration because I want us all to uh, really soberly uh, consider what's in that document and uh, see if there's anything salvageable. See, you understand what I'm saying? All right, talk, continuing with our discussion on the two kingdoms, though. This is, again, all foundation work before we look at the Manhattan Declaration. Um, I continue with this document. The, the Augsburg Confession makes it clear that the ecclesiastical and civil power are not to be confused. Each, that would be basically the church and the state, each has its own mandate. The church has its commission to preach the gospel and to administer the sacraments. It should not interfere with civil government or try to tell civil rulers how they should govern, for Christ says that his kingdom is not of this world. And when asked to settle a legal dispute, he replied, who made me judge or arbiter between you? That's Luke chapter 12, verse 14. But on the other hand, a participatory democracy like ours, this would be in Australia or the United States or Great Britain or any Western democracy. Uh, So in in a participatory democracy like ours, both Christians and the church have the right and duty to express their opinion. So it's important to realize that the problem facing the church at the time of the Reformation is the exact opposite of what of that in our own day. The culture of the Middle Ages was Christian and church and state were mixed up together with no clear distinction between them, so that bishops spent more time in ministering civil affairs than looking after the church. And conversely, the state often put pressure on the churches to forego their doctrinal differences in the interests of political stability. Indeed, the whole Reformation cannot be properly understood if it's divorced from its political context. In our day, the problem is different. 
Under the influence of the of Enlightenment rationalism, the church in the Western world, and certainly the Lutheran church, has lost its credibility as a public institution and, like religion generally, has simply been relegated to the private inner world of individual experience. The idea of the two kingdoms originally comes from St. Augustine, one of the great theologians of the Western Church. He developed the idea in order to defend the church against the criticism that it was to blame for the fall of the Roman Empire because it refused to participate in the state religion. He said that there are two cities or two kingdoms, the kingdom of God, the heavenly city, and the kingdom of Satan, the earthly city. Christians belong to the kingdom of God and unbelievers to the kingdom of Satan. These two will continue to be locked in conflict until the end of the world when the kingdom of God will prevail and the kingdom of Satan will be destroyed. Martin Luther initially accepted this dualism, but later rejected the idea that the world is to be identified with the kingdom of Satan. He rightly insisted that the world is God's world and that Satan is at work in both the earthly kingdom to destroy law and order, as well as in the heavenly kingdom to stop people believing in Christ and the gospel. God uses the resources of his two kingdoms and two reigns to bring about his defeat. That's Satan's defeat. So let us repeat, in the two kingdoms doctrine, the two kingdoms are not the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, but the heavenly realm, and the earthly realm. It is wrong to identify God with the former and Satan with the latter. The fact is that God and Satan are both at work in both kingdoms. Once Luther recognized this, he began to gradually reconceive the whole idea of the two kingdoms, putting it on a sound scriptural basis as he wrestled with various social and political problems of his day. So God rules in two ways. While all creation belongs to God, he rules the world using two different forms of government, the secular and the spiritual. God's secular government or reign is related to the left-hand kingdom or earthly realm. This embraces all people who live in God's world, whether they believe in him or not. God's spiritual government or reign, on the other hand, is related to his right-hand kingdom or heavenly realm, and this comprises all those who believe in Christ and live under his lordship. God rules the left-hand realm through earthly government. The way God rules this realm is through law, both natural law and positive law, as well as reason. Earthly government here is wider than three arms of government in Western democracy. It includes those structures of society that are essential for its preservation and good order. Uh, these would include things such as marriage and family, work and property, trade, commerce, and economics. In other words, God, God rules the world through social and political institutions. It's both. It's not just politics. It's also social institutions like marriage. Number two, God rules the right-hand realm through the means of grace. This is the spiritual kingdom. Here he uses his word rather than reason, gospel rather than law, mercy rather than coercion. The highest authority, indeed the only authority in this realm, is the word of God, not the edict of kings, the decrees of parliaments, or the judgments of the courts. 
The two different hands or ways God uses to rule the world correspond to the distinction between law and gospel. He uses the law, as we have seen in his left hand, to maintain order and peace in society, to protect life and property, to curb gross sin and evil, to punish wrongdoing, and to promote the good. On the other hand, God uses the gospel in his right hand to nurture those who believe in Christ. It is through the gospel that he forgives sins, comforts troubled consciences, and builds his people up in love for good works. He does this through baptism, the preached word, absolution, the Lord's Supper. We should note that the law also plays a role in the right hand kingdom, but there the law has only uh, penalty, but here the law has only penultimate authority and is used in the service of the gospel. The law is proclaimed to Christians to expose their sin and to make them despair of any attempt to become or remain right with God on the basis of our own efforts. Here, God uses the law to lead people to seek mercy and the forgiveness in Christ. This is called the theological use of the law and is held to be the main use of the law in in, in, in Christian theology. The law also has a didactic role to play, the so-called third use of the law, where it teaches Christians, only Christians, the good works that God wants them to do for their neighbor. One of the reasons why Luther developed the doctrine of the two kingdoms is because he had to combat the false belief in the Roman church that both swords, temporal and spiritual, belonged to Peter, and hence to the Pope. Luther held that each of God's hands has its own work and that one hand must not interfere with the other. To put it simply, bishops and pastors should attend to running the church and exercising their authority in spiritual things. They should not be trying to run the country or using their office to gain personal benefit or special privileges denied to others. On the other hand, rulers and politicians should stick to running the country and not meddle in ecclesiastical matters. We continue. The important thing to note is that God has two hands and that he is the ruler of both realms. What differs is the way he rules. He has not abandoned his world to evil. He can even use an unjust government to serve his purposes by maintaining law and order. The same God stands behind both the secular and the spiritual government and is present in them. If this is not understood, we end up with a dualistic idea that God only rules over the church and abandons the world to operate according to its own independent and autonomous principles. This misunderstanding, common in the 19th century, gave rise to trenchant criticism of Luther's doctrine of the two kingdoms. But the criticism was misplaced. Luther was never guilty of dualism. He never held that the political and economic spheres, we could also include the scientific and technological spheres, are autonomous and independent. Rather, he taught that all spheres of human endeavor and the people who work in them are subject to the sovereign authority of God. However, when the state intervenes in the affairs of the church and tries to change its doctrine and practice for political ends, the outcome is calamitous. Here we only have to think of the great distress caused by King Frederick Wilhelm III, who attempted to force the union of the, of the Lutheran and Reformed churches in Prussia in the early part of the 19th century. In the interest of greater political stability, 
This was the event that caused the first Lutherans to emigrate to Australia under the leadership of Pastor Cavill. Perhaps this profoundly negative experience of government is a significant reason why Lutherans in this country, that's Australia, have been tended to be suspicious of government and politically disengaged. The attitude was reinforced by the unjust persecution of some Lutherans by the authorities during the Second World War. I continue. We said earlier that the two reigns of God are different. He rules through the secular government with a sword to restrain evil and coerce obedience. But in the church, God rules without force through his word, especially the gospel, to forgive the sins of all who repent and believe. God's spiritual reign in Christ is not the same as his earthly reign in the world. God rules over all people as creator and preserver, but Christians also live under his spiritual reign. Because God reigns over the earthly realm through the law, Christians in secular government should not seek to legislate according to the teachings of Christ, for only Christians acknowledge Christ's authority. Instead, they should do this according to natural law, common law, reason, learned opinion, and other collective wisdoms of the ages. Luther reminds us that Moses and the Old Testament also offer much wisdom on the topic of government that could be profitably read by rulers. The Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy 5, are consistent with natural law since they are written on the hearts of all people, Romans chapter 2. So the two reigns of God are mutually dependent and they serve each other. This has implications for the relation between church and state. The church needs Caesar to ensure it is able to worship God and preach the gospel freely and without interference. Likewise, the secular government needs the prayers and intercessions of the church, whether it realizes or it realizes it or not, to do its job properly. In fact, the church is commanded to pray for all people in authority. See first Timothy chapter two, verses one through two. So Christians lead double lives, but hopefully not in the hypocritical sense. They are citizens of two kingdoms, but they do not have two masters. God alone has absolute claim on us, Matthew 6, 24. And when the state becomes tyrannical, as it does when it adopts a totalitarian ideology, it exceeds its God-given bounds. Then we are free from our obligation to obey it, for it is no longer a state under God, but has usurped divine authority and is answerable to no one but itself. In such a case, to submit to the authority of the state is a greater sin than to resist it. Notice that both are sins. And now it just becomes a matter of which is the greater sin. So where to draw the line will sometimes be hard to determine. We need to remember that when Paul calls Christians to honor the emperor as supreme and to pray for all who are in positions of power, he was well aware that many of these rulers were not kindly disposed to the church. A quick reading of the Acts of the Apostles will confirm this for any of you who doubt that. So there will always be some tensions and ambiguities in the interactions between God's two kingdoms. When does a Christian act according to the Sermon on the Mount, suffer injustice, turn the other cheek? And when does a Christian resort to secular power, the civil justicism, to redress injustice and injury? One way of approaching this dilemma that Luther came up with is to make a distinction between the person and the office. In their private life, Christians generally follow the example of Christ by suffering injustice and forgiving those who wrong them. 
But if they hold a public office, then in their vocation, they must act according to the duties of that office. A judge who is a Christian, to take a simple example, will have to sentence a convicted criminal even if he or she feels compassionate towards that person. Although one would hope that any judge will always temper justice with mercy. But in private life, if that same judge is wronged or suffers an injustice, especially if it is because he or she is a Christian, they will seek revenge, but they will not seek revenge, but will be willing to forgive for Christ's sake. To take another example, Christians who serve in the armed forces can be assured that if they have to kill the enemy in battle, they are not breaking the fifth commandment, which says thou shalt not murder. For God has authorized governments to defend their citizens against an aggressor by means of force. However, in civilian life, when they are not acting with the authority of their office, this commandment also applies to soldiers just as it does to everyone else. So we need to make it quite clear that Luther's distinction between person and office in no way countenances or supports a double standard of morality one for private life and the other for public life. Christians are always called to act with integrity and should never do anything that they would be ashamed of doing before God. What Luther's distinction does is to provide a framework for understanding why Christians in certain situations, for example, when acting in an official capacity, are called to act contrary to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Luther's distinction between person and office is not the end of the story. While I may decide not to seek legal redress or compensation for myself as the victim of a wrongdoing, the injustice or crime that I suffer may have consequences for my neighbor, which includes spouse and children, and indeed for the wider community. In this case, I may be compelled out of love for the common good, not out of spiteful vindictiveness, to seek to bring the perpetrator to justice. This, at least, is Luther's position. He always puts concern for other people ahead of concern for oneself. So this now leads to the logical question. So what, then, is the task of the church? The task of the church is to preach the gospel and to make disciples through baptism and catechesis, to absolve the penitent of their sins, and to teach the way of salvation, to pray for all people, especially for those in government and positions of authority, to minister with the means of grace, to discipline wayward sinners. The gospel is the true treasure of the church, and the church alone has the mandate to preach it. The task of the church is always spiritual, although this may have political implications. It is not called, the church is not called to develop and implement policies for a more just and equitable society, to feed the hungry, or to take care of the poor, although Christians individually will do all they can to alleviate suffering and hardship wherever it occurs. Again, the church has no mandate to broker deals between the government and indigenous Australians, or to form a political party, or to put up candidates for office, although Christians individually can belong to a political party, and they can stand for office. 
Yet, the church is passionately concerned about policies in all areas of public life and should be actively involved in advising governments in all issues of social importance. It also has every right to speak out, uh, speak out on any issue wherever it, it believes that the rights of the poor and the marginalized are being neglected or that the government is corrupt and guilty of gross in, injustice. This is part of the church's spiritual mandate, its mission, and if it neglects this wider public duty to be the conscience of the nation, it will only have itself to blame if the world relegates it to the private realm and ignores its message as irrelevant to everyday life. The church's task is to proclaim the gospel, and at the same time, it must exercise a watching brief. It must uphold the rights of the poor, speak out against injustice, oppression, racism, and abuse of power wherever it occurs. It must see to it that the sanctity of all human life is respected from the unborn through through to the ages, aged, including the sick and the disabled. The church is called to be a leaven in society, the salt of the earth, and a city set on a hill. It is to be the conscience of society and must raise its prophetic voice wherever there is injustice, oppression, and corruption on the part of those in positions of responsibility. It must hold governments and institutions accountable to the public and ultimately to God. So should there be a separation of church and state? One common misunderstanding that must be resisted today is the belief that the separation of church and state is demanded by Luther's doctrine of of God's two kingdoms and two reigns. It would be more correct to say that the church and state must be clearly distinguished but not separated. It is true that the church and the state each has its own area of competence and responsibility. The truth of the argument for separation is this. The secular government must not interfere with the proclamation of the gospel, and conversely, the church must not use the agency of the state to try to promote the gospel or to Christianize society. The argument for the separation of church and state has been often used to justify the church's non-involvement in the political and economic affairs of the country. The church, it is argued, simply belongs to the private religious realm and should not interfere in the affairs of the state. However, we have seen that the church's mandate has a social and a political dimension. The church must exercise its prophetic role or risk being ignored completely. This, of course, is even more difficult today in our pluralist world where the voice of the Christian churches must compete with the voices of other world religions and numerous ideologies. All right. Now that's the the gist of the document on the, that talks about the two kingdoms. And with that done, when I get back from the break, I'm going to dive into the document itself, the Manhattan Declaration itself, and really evaluate it and what's being said and the controversy regarding it to evaluate it in the light of these two kingdoms. Unfortunately, the document itself, I think, does confuse law and gospel, and I think it does confuse the two kingdoms. And that being said, I do see at the heart of this thing, it not an ecumenical document. What I see at the heart of it is Christians trying to speak prophetically where they should be speaking prophetically. 
So uh, that being the case, we'll, we'll talk about it properly when we get back from this break. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there again, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. What if the entire resurrection was a hoax? Well, that's the premise of the book A Skeleton in God's Closet. Written by Paul L. Meyer, the story is about Dr. Jonathan Weber, a Harvard professor and biblical scholar who's looking forward to a sabbatical year on an archaeological dig in Israel. But a spectacular find that seems to be an archaeologist's dream come true becomes a nightmare that could be the death rattle of Christianity. This book is carefully researched and compellingly written. A Skeleton in God's Closet explores the tension between doubt and faith, science and religion, and one man's determination to find the truth no matter what the cost. Said Paul Erdman of the New York Times, With a skeleton in God's closet, Paul Meyer has created a new genre, the theological thriller. It reads like Robert Ludlum while expertly exploring the origins of Christianity. It's a superb book. A Skeleton in God's Closet is available at piratechristianradio.com. It's right there on the homepage. It's available for $14.99 plus $4.95 shipping and handling. And all proceeds support the ongoing work of Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com and get your copy of A Skeleton in God's Closet today. Christmas season is upon us. It's time for parties and gifts and all that kind of stuff. Do you have a Christmas party or potluck that you need to plan for? Or maybe you enjoy giving food gifts for Christmas. Either way, Pirate Christian Radio's featured holiday sponsor, the Wisconsin Cheese Man, has a huge variety of gourmet cheeses, sausages, cakes, and cookies. Oh, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. Just for you. They have gifts such as their cheese and sausage combo pack or their cheese great gift basket or my personal favorite, the Big Nibbler. Whatever your holiday taste might be, the Wisconsin Cheese Man has exactly what you're looking for. So if you would like to purchase something from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, 
visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese. Click on the banner provided there and you will be taken to the promised land of gourmet cheeses. <laughs> and just remember, a portion of everything you purchase from the Wisconsin Cheese Man, after you've clicked on that link, goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheese today. We're back. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. Tackling a controversial topic in light of what God's Word teaches. Now, it took me the entire first hour to uh, to lay out the groundwork on the two kingdoms, which I think is, a, is absolutely prerequisite for determining whether or not uh, the, the uh, Manhattan Declaration is something that we as Christians... Uh, well, should be signing up to. And believe me, there's controversy on this. I'm just weighing in and giving you mine. Okay, now we've done the two kingdoms. We've laid out two kingdoms, refreshed ourselves with the under- proper understanding of law and gospel. That being said, let me read some of the opening paragraphs here to the Manhattan Declaration itself. The Manhattan Declaration, if you would like to read the entire document, and again, the controversy that's swirling around this thing is is is, is at a fever pitch right now. Uh, let me read the preamble, and uh, the preamble kind of lays the groundwork. The uh, the opening paragraph of the Declaration is where the real battle is being fought, but let me read this for you. Uh, preamble says, Christians are heirs of a 2,000-year tradition of proclaiming God's word, seeking justice in our societies, resisting tyranny, and reaching out with compassion to the poor, the oppressed, and the suffering. And And, okay, all right. Yes, Christians are, they have done that. That is, and that's a, that is an implication of the gospel in individual Christians' life. However, I want to make it clear. It is not the job of the church, per se, to resist tyranny, seek justice, resist tyranny. But though, you know, as we went through our document here on proper distinction of, of the two kingdoms, the church must state its opinion. Uh, regarding these things in a democracy like uh, like many of the Western democracies. We continue. While fully acknowledging the imperfections and shortcomings of the Christian institutions and communities in all ages, we claim that the heritage of those Christians who defended innocent life by rescuing discarded babies from the trash heaps, heaps in Roman cities and publicly denouncing the empire's sanctioning of infanticide, remember the reverence of those believers who sanctified their lives by remaining in Roman cities to tend for the sick and the dying during the plagues, and who died bravely in the Colosseums rather than to deny their Lord. After barbarian tribes overran Europe, Christian monasteries preserved not only the Bible, but also the literature and art of Western culture. It was Christians who combated the evil of slavery. Papal edicts in the 16th and 17th centuries decried the practice of slavery and first excommunicated anyone involved in the slave trade. Evangelical Christians in England, led by John Wesley and William Wilberforce, put an end to the slave trade in that country. Christians under Wilberforce's leadership also formed hundreds of societies for helping the poor, the imprisoned, and child laborers chained to machines. In Europe, Christians changed the divine claims of kings and successfully fought 
to establish the rule of law and balance of governmental powers, which made modern democracy possible. And in America, Christian women stood at the vanguard of the suffrage movement. The great civil rights crusades of the 1950s and 60s were led by Christians claiming the scriptures and asserting the glory of the image of God in every human being, regardless of race, religion, age, or class. This same devotion to human dignity has led Christians in the last decade to work to end the dehumanizing scourge of human trafficking and sexual slavery, bringing compassionate care to AIDS sufferers in Africa, and assist in a myriad of other human rights causes from providing clean water in developing nations to providing homes for tens of thousands of children orphaned by war, disease, and and gender discrimination. Like those who have gone before us in the faith, Christians today are called to proclaim the gospel of costly grace. There's a, there's a little confusion there to protect intrinsic dignity of the human person and to stand for the common good in being true to its own calling, the calling to discipleship, the church through service to others can make a profound contribution uh, to the public good. Now I'm going to pause here. If we are to understand the Manhattan Declaration as falling under the realm of the left-hand kingdom, it makes more sense. If we, if we see the Manhattan Declaration as a mandate for churches to abandon the preaching of the gospel... And don't and see it as a confusion of the right and the left hand kingdoms. It's a dangerous document. Okay, it really all depends on how you see it, and it, this is really important. I, I I see some confusion here between the two kingdoms, but I continue reading. Now this is where the rub is. Okay, the opening paragraph in the declaration section of this document is where the real battle lies. Let me read. It says, we as Orthodox, we as Catholic and Evangelical Christians have gathered beginning in New York on September 28th, 2009 to make the following declaration, which we sign as individuals, not on behalf of our organizations, but speaking to and from our communities. We act together in obedience to the one true God, the triune God of holiness and love, who has laid total claim to our lives and by that claim calls us with believers in all ages and all nations to seek and defend the good of all who bear his image. Think left-hand kingdom. The problem here that a lot of people have with this document is that it looks like it is steeped in ecumenicism. It's steeped in ecumenicism, that somehow by signing this document, you are tacitly putting your stamp and basically uh, uh, your, your stamp of approval on ecumenicism. That by signing this document, because it includes Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholics, and Evangelical Christians, that what you're basically doing is saying that... Uh, that Rome has the gospel right, the Eastern Orthodox have the gospel right, and and that evangelical Christians also have the gospel right, despite the fact that they all teach different things regarding the gospel. 
Okay. When you look at this document as a church document, in the right-hand kingdom, if you interpret it that way, then it is hopelessly ecumenical and must be rejected. And if you look at it in light of the left-hand kingdom, as individual people in different churches working together in the left-hand kingdom, in a left-hand kingdom kind of way, for the general good, first use of the law, then this isn't an ecumenical document at all. And that's where each individual Christian is going to have to make some decisions. It's not easy to brand it one way or another. There's a lot of merit to this document if it stays in the realm of the left-hand kingdom. There is no merit to this document whatsoever if it is a right if it's perceived and viewed and interpreted as a right-hand kingdom document. Does that make sense? I hope it does. <clears throat> so so we act together in obedience to the one true God, and basically, apparently, the only uh, the thing that's unifying uh, these different event, these different church people uh, to sign this document, the thing that unifies them, is some generic belief in in basically uh, Trinitarian theology, because the gospel is is you know is really not well defined at all, if at all. But see, the, the, see, the question is, is this a left-hand kingdom document or a right-hand kingdom document? That's the right question. So we set forth this declaration in light of the truth that it is grounded in Holy Scripture in natural human reason, left-hand kingdom, which is itself, in our view, the gift of a, of a beneficent God and the very nature of human of the human person. We call upon all people of goodwill, believers and non-believers alike, to consider carefully and reflect critically on the issues we here address as we, with St. Paul, commend this appeal to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. While the whole scope of Christian moral concern, including a special concern for the poor and vulnerable claims and the vulnerable claims our attention, we are especially troubled that in our nation today the lives of the unborn, the disabled, and the elderly are severely threatened, that the institution of marriage, already buffeted by promiscuity, infidelity, and divorce, is in jeopardy of being redefined to accommodate fashionable ideologies, that freedom of religion and the rights of the conscience are gravely jeopardized by those who would use the instruments of coercion to compel persons of faith to compromise their deepest convictions. Because the sanctity of human life, of marriage, as a union of husband and wife, and the freedom of conscience and religion are foundational principles of justice and the common good, we are compelled by our Christian faith to speak and act in their defense. In this declaration, we affirm, one, the profound, inherent, and equal dignity of every human being as a creature fashioned in the very image of God, possessing inherent rights of equal dignity in life. Two, marriage as a conjugal union of man and woman ordained by God from the creation and historically understood by believers and non-believers alike to be the most basic institution in society. And three, religious liberty, which is grounded in the character of God, the example of Christ, and the inherent freedom of dignity and, and of human rights created in the divine image. 
We are Christians who have joined together across historic lines of ecclesiastical differences. Notice it says, doesn't say churches. It says we are Christians who have joined together. Left-hand kingdom. Think left-hand kingdom, not right-hand kingdom. We are Christians who have joined together across historic lines of ecclesiastical differences to affirm our right and, more importantly, to embrace our obligation to speak and to act in defense of these truths. Left-hand kingdom, left-hand kingdom. We pledge to each other and to our fellow believers that no power on earth will, will uh, be it cultural or political, will intimidate us into silence or acquiescence. It is our duty to proclaim the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ in its fullness, both in season and out of season. May God help us not to fail in that duty. Now you got the question. Well, wait a second. You say it's your duty to proclaim these things, you know, to defend life, to defend marriage, and to defend religious liberty. And then you've got people who have a different understanding of the gospel all claiming their right to proclaim the gospel. See, this is where the document gets muddy. It gets really muddy here. The reason why it gets muddy is because now it's switched into right-hand kingdom if this is a if this was just purely a left-hand kingdom document there wouldn't be any problems and i do think the right way to in to look at this document is as a left-hand kingdom document in light of what i just read to you in a couple of places though it slips into right-hand kingdom thinking and therefore immediately raises theological flags regarding what's the definition of the gospel then. Let me fast forward through the document to kind of the, 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 the final end. <clears throat> the last paragraph reads, Because we honor and uh, justice and the common good, we will not comply with any edict that purports to compel our institutions to participate in abortions, embryonic destructive research, assisted suicide and euthanasia, or any anti-life act, nor will we bend to any rule purporting to force us to bless immoral sexual partnerships, treat them as marriages or the equivalent, or to refrain from proclaiming the truth as we know it about morality and immorality and marriage and the family. We will fully and ungrudgingly render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but under no circumstances will we, will we render to Caesar what is God's. Okay. So how are we to view this document? What's the Christian biblical way to do it? If it stays in the left-hand kingdom, I'm all for it. Where it slips into the right-hand kingdom and muddies the gospel, I must staunchly say that it's wrong and in error. It's a mixed bag document. But overall, I think it's addressing a very important left-hand kingdom issue. All of the people who are hearing me who are in a Western democracy, 
we Christians are in two, we have dual citizenship. The job of the church, the job of the church is to proclaim the gospel. That's the right-hand kingdom. And as Christians, understanding that God rules the world through governments that he's established, and because in Western democracies, those democracies derive their power from the people who are governed, we must prophetically speak out and put a line in the sand that says absolutely under no circumstances will we support or bend our knee to Caesar when it comes to the issue of life, when it comes to the issue of marriage, and when it comes to the issue of religious liberty. And I think that's really what's at the heart of this document. That's what this thing imperfectly is trying to convey. I don't see this as a right-hand kingdom document, even though it muddies the line sometimes. I see it as a left-hand kingdom document. And it raises some very important issues. And for those of you who are listening who are my Christian brothers and sisters and in good conscience cannot sign on to this document, I completely understand that. That is well within your Christian liberty to do so. And I would basically say and challenge you that your prophetic voice as a dual citizen, citizen of your respective country, and a a citizen of the kingdom of God, that you have every obligation to sign on to the spirit of what this document is conveying. Even if you can't sign your name to the document itself because it it muddies things up. Now let me sign let me read Al Muller. Al Muller actually put out a piece where he explained why he signed the document. He says, I'm not inclined to sign manifestos or petitions. While I believe strongly and passionately about many causes, I'm not usually impressed with the effectiveness of such statements. And I'm generally concerned about how how such statements might be used or construed by others. I am not reluctant to speak for myself and from my own Christian convictions and consequent judgments. Furthermore, the constant exchange of opposing statements on this or that issue merely crowd the public square as opposing viewpoints compete for attention. So for reasons perhaps both admirable and maybe not so admirable, I prefer to stand on my own public statements. But... Al Mohler says, I signed the Manhattan Declaration. Indeed, I am among the original signatories to that statement released to the public at the National Press Club last Friday. Why? Well, there are several reasons, but they all come down to this. I believe we are facing an inevitable and cultural determining decision on the three issues centrally identified in the statement. I also believe that we will experience a significant loss of Christian churches, denominations, and institutions in this process. There is even good reason to believe that the freedom to conduct Christian ministry according to, the, to Christian conviction is being subverted and denied before our very eyes. I believe that the sanctity of human life, the integrity of marriage, and religious liberty are very much in danger at this moment. Notice, what is he talking about here? Left-hand kingdom issues. The signatories to the Manhattan Declaration include evangelical leaders as well as leaders from the Roman Catholic Church and Orthodox churches. The statement establishes the priority of the issue addressed. Okay. 
So basically, what's the reason he signed it? He signed it because he has concerns regarding where the government is heading in the United States. And he's will, at this point, he's willing to be a co-belligerent with people of other, you know, basically completely different denominations with significant differences theologically. He's willing to be co-belligerents with them in this left-hand kingdom issue. Now, let me take off my Christian hat for a second, although I really can't do it because, you know, everything I do is informed by that. But let me let me, let me take it off for a second. I'm going to talk right now as a citizen of the United States of America. As a citizen of the United States of America, I am concerned about the greater good of our society, and I think that it is completely falling apart and degenerating. We are approaching 50 million infants aborted since Roe v. Wade. 50 million. Let me put some perspective on that. Hitler, in the concentration camps in during World War II, murdered 6 million Jews. Stalin, under his regime, murdered 10 million people. The United States of America, since 1972, I think, has systematically murdered 50 million unborn children. I fear that when Christ returns, the United States that rid the world of the scourge of Nazism was on the vanguard of fighting to defeat Nazi Germany that won the Cold War against a, a basically a completely immoral political regime known as the Soviet Union is going to have to apologize to both. In the United States, now, there is a pitched, pitched battle regarding the sanctity of marriage. This is not an issue at this point. It, 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 this is not an issue regarding repentance and the forgiveness of sins. The church must proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins to everybody in the United States, especially to homosexuals. And at the same time, as citizens of the United States must say no for the greater good of society, for the greater good of society, marriage must be protected for the greater good of society and for... And because murder is an absolute injustice, we must continue to proclaim to the United States government that abortion is murder and call for its eradication and end and criminalization. Not to earn God's favor, but for the greater good of society because that's the right thing to do. When you keep things in the proper perspective, right-hand kingdom, left-hand kingdom, 
then it all, you, you can see what's really going on here in this Manhattan Declaration. I don't see it as an ecumenical document because it's not really a church document. It's a policy document crafted by a bunch of people who are religious. And here's the deal. Ultimately, I don't care if Buddhists join in the fight against abortion. I just don't care. As an American citizen, I'll take whatever it takes to get the, the, the right amount of people, to the, the correct amount of people to vote so that we win a majority on the issue. It's not like I'm going to say, oh, no, if you're a Buddhist, I don't want you voting in favor of, of, of our policies because I'm a Christian and you're a Buddhist. That's not how – you understand what I'm saying? Anyway, as promised, though, I would uh, – I'm going to take a look at some of the criticism here of this document. Again, and I think the reason why there is such criticism, why there is uh, a lot of debate about this particular document is because – it confuses the two kingdoms enough to throw the red flags regarding ecumenicism. And, you know, and despite that, uh, it really, if you really read the documents, it's not really an ecumenical document at all. What this thing really is, um, it's, it's really a left-hand kingdom document. It's a, it's a matter of governing. Uh, you know, it's, it's a matter of governance. All right. All right. Here we go. Dan Phillips of the uh, Pyromaniacs blog. Here's what he says. Many of you, uh, uh, many of you, I'm absolutely slack-jawed, baffled at some of the names on the Manhattan Declaration. I've already briefly expressed my own thoughts on that document. Were I able to get their ear and interview them, these are the questions I would ask them uh, of the generally evangelical brothers and sisters who signed that thing. Dan Phillips is not is is absolutely against it. He says he would ask these questions. Number one, is the Bible your sole sufficient ultimate source and authority for faith and practice? That's a right hand kingdom question. And this is a left hand kingdom document, by the way. Number two, do you believe that the biblical gospel is the good news that lost sinful man can be reconciled to God by grace alone through faith alone uh, because of Christ's person and work alone to the glory of God alone as seen with the final authority in scripture alone? Again, this is a right-hand kingdom issue. And I would say, Dan, you're absolutely right in pointing out that the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholics, uh, there's some significant problems in their, uh, in their, in their uh, doctrine here as it pertains to the biblical gospel. No Catholic is going to say, yeah. But this is really not a right-hand kingdom document. This is a left-hand kingdom document, even though it, it's muddied and a little uh, fuzzy on some of that definition. Number three, do you see the, do you see, note my well-wording, scriptural warrant for applying the word Christian to anyone other than one who is, who is yoked as a student to the words of Christ and his apostles, who affirms the gospel as described in number two above, who has been spiritually regenerated by grace alone through faith alone. You see, again, that's what he's referring to is the first paragraph there in the declaration that talks about uh it says let me let me get the wording exactly here and and what what is what is Dan doing he's applying right hand kingdom questions to what i think is ostensibly a left hand kingdom document he said the declaration says we as orthodox catholic and evangelical christians oh, see i have a problem with that i don't consider roman catholics who believe in salvation by grace plus works to be Christians. I don't. That's a false gospel. 
And so the Dan Phillips's issue here is is you know basically focusing in on that and basically saying this smells like a, a document that has to do with ecumenicism. And if I sign it, am I tac- am I basically tacitly saying that uh, that Catholics who deny the biblical gospel are Christians? See, I I just think this was poorly put together. And the reason why it's poorly put together is because there was a there wasn't a proper distinction of the two kingdoms here. However, again, I point out that if you read the document in its context, it's clear that this is really meant to be a left-hand kingdom document and that the people who signed it signed it as individuals not as as uh representatives of their different ecclesiastical uh institutions, which I think is important because that puts it again into the left-hand kingdom. Let me read, um, let's see here. Um, John MacArthur, he talks about why he didn't uh, sign it. He gives some reasons. John MacArthur says, here are the main reasons I'm not signing the Manhattan Declaration, even though a few men whom I love and respect have already affixed their names to it. Um, One, although I obviously agree with the document's opposition to same-sex marriage, abortion, and other key moral uh, problems threatening our culture, the document falls far far short of identifying one true and ultimate remedy for all of humanity's moral ills, the gospel. See, here's the deal. What's what's John MacArthur doing? He's he's dealing in the realm of right-hand kingdom. This is really a left-hand kingdom document. Okay? And his his observations in light of the right-hand kingdom are absolutely spot on. If you see this as a right-hand kingdom document, as an ecumenical document that somehow is uniting uh, churches with different definitions of the gospel, different gospels, you can't sign this document. No way. And if you really see this document as a left-hand kingdom document, is basically different people of different recognized differences when it comes to ecclesiology, basically saying in the left-hand kingdom, we've got a government that is basically impinging on all of our rights and we need to, we either hang together or we're all going to hang separately politically in light of what the government is doing. And we must resist what the government is doing and speak prophetically to the government. First use of the law, left-hand kingdom, then the document makes sense, and, and I can understand why somebody who is a Christian could sign it. So MacArthur's critique falls into the critique of the right-hand kingdom, all right? He p- rightly points out that the gospel is, is barely mentioned in the Declaration. At one point, uh, the statement rightly acknowledges it's our duty to proclaim the gospel, um, yet the gospel itself is nowhere presented, much less explained in the document. See again, this is really it's really a left hand kingdom document. That's what and if if they would just clear this up and force it into the left hand kingdom and then educate everyone as to what that means, then we you understand what I'm saying. He says this is precisely where the document fails most egregiously. It assumes from the start that all signatories are fellow Christians whose only difference is to is have to do with the fact that they represent distinct communities. I don't think that's a fair critique. I think they recognize their differences and they're signing it as individuals and this is a left-hand kingdom document. Anyway, points of disagreement are tacitly acknowledged but are described as historical lines of ecclesiastical differences rather than fundamental conflicts of doctrine. The conviction with regard to the gospel and the question of which teachings are essentially uh, are essential to authentic Christianity. 
<sighs> yeah, see, again, I understand John MacArthur's problem here. I get it. He sees this as a right-hand kingdom document. And yet if you read it, I think the spirit of the thing is not that it's meant to be some kind of, it's, it's some kind of a tacit approval and that by signing it, you're saying that Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, even though they teach a different gospel, are Christians. I see it as, as basically saying, listen, we, we all supposedly have something in common here. And uh, we've got to unite together to speak as one voice against what's going on in the government, left-hand kingdom, for the greater good of all, left-hand kingdom, defend the institution of marriage, which is a left-hand kingdom institution. You see what I'm saying here? Anyway, I hope I'm making sense because I consider this to be a really thorny issue and I understand both sides of it. I understand both sides of it, but when you read the document itself, I think what they're really trying to do and don't do a good job of it is is make this a left-hand kingdom issue. And because of the way they worded it, it sounds right-hand kingdom as if it's some kind of ecumenical document. And so there's lots of controversy. Where do I stand on it? Well, I'll be I'll be blunt. I completely agree that we need to stand together as one voice against what the government is doing and the erosion of our government and the erosion of our society for the greater good in a left-hand kingdom kind of way uh, and speak as Christians against these things. Therefore, I will, as a Christian, speak prophetically and sign my actions to these issues but I won't sign the document itself because I do not, under any circumstances, want to give the appearance that I am smoothing over the very real theological problems that exist in Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy and in their treatment of the gospel. Nor so that does that make sense? I'm not trying to find a middle ground here, but I will say in a very left-hand kingdom kind of way, I'm signing on to to addressing and combating these issues in the left-hand kingdom and maintaining the distinction in the right-hand kingdom by basically saying no, I can't sign a document that would make it look like I'm I'm considering people who preach a false gospel to be Christians. Can't do that. So it's kind of it's it, it's a weird position I'm in, kind of a both and. Weird, huh? <laughs> what do you think? I would love to get your feedback. I've gone now almost a, what an hour and thirty nine minutes uh, discussing this issue. Would love to get your feedback. And the way you would send me your feedback is send me an email, talk back at fightingforthefaith dot com, or leave a message on my Facebook wall. Uh, Facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. That's a good, great place for discussions to take place. All right. With all of that said, it's time for our sermon review. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, we're going to do a sermon review on top of all of that. And uh, that requires us to uh, whirl up our sermon review music. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. Today's sermon is from a sermon series entitled Real Theology. That's R-E-E-L, as in movie, real. The name of the sermon is Twilight, 
Love Conquers All. This is preached at Overlake Church, Redmond, Washington, by Mike Howerton. Discernment scale, difficulty of uh, discernment, is a 7 or a 7.5. You are going to hear the gospel. You will hear it as a main point, not as an afterthought. And yet, that may not be enough to save this sermon. Tough to say, mixed bag. This is a mixed bag sermon, so you definitely want to... Kind of like with the Manhattan Declaration, you're going to need to uh, exercise some discernment. Listen for proper preaching of law and gospel, God's word correctly handled, and whether or not the pastor is preaching his own ideas as if they're biblical truth. That's kind of the key to unlocking this one, by the way. All right, so with that, I'm going to kill the music, and we're going to dive right over to our sermon. This is uh, Real Theology Twilight, based on that vampire movie, apparently. And just before the pastor begins his sermon, he shows a clip um, that is not part of the audio, but here we go. That's, uh, yeah, that's a a little trailer to get the ball rolling, in my opinion, far more exciting than the actual movie. Um, What... uh, What I would want to say is the reason why we're doing a series called Real Theology and the reason why we're talking about movies is when we look at what Jesus did, Jesus often used parables. In fact, the Bible says he never taught us without using parables. What a parable was was uh, a story that had some kind of... Okay, got to stop right there. Okay, already we got a little bit of a problem. Okay, so the reason why he's justifying doing an entire sermon series on movies. By the way, he uh, preached on... The movie Slumdog Millionaire, Wally, uh, The Dark Knight, and the movie Twilight. It, he's justifying this, which is a seeker-driven methodology. Well, it's because Jesus taught in parables. Uh, Pastor, I, I just got to point this out. Dude, your job isn't to preach in parables. Your job is to preach the parables and then tell us what they mean. You don't need to make up your own. You need to actually preach the parables that Jesus taught and then tell us what they mean. It's pointing that out. We continue. Social context or cultural context. He used the language that everyone was speaking, and he used that story to highlight some kind of a spiritual reality. He would draw from a story that everyone knew and was familiar with. He would draw some kind of an illustration about the heart of God, who God is, or what God was wanting to communicate. And he was a master at this. We just want to walk in his footsteps. So we chose four movies over the last 12 months. These are four of the most popular movies that exist in our culture. Uh, so we want to follow in Christ's footsteps. Okay, listen to him. Did you hear that? That's so we want to follow in Christ's footsteps. So now we're preaching on movies. Well, if if he were to be consistent, then the only the only thing he could preach is parables. He would have to go if he's going to follow in Christ's footsteps. It's not as if Jesus actually left this as an example for us to follow. You know, it's not like he's sitting there going, you know, uh, Peter and uh, John and James. Listen, what I really want you to do is after I rise back into heaven. I want you to do, you know, follow the example that I set, and I want you to teach everybody in parables. <sighs> Just a really bad, bad use of scripture here. 
over the last 12 months. Uh, three of the four were Academy Award winners. So we had Slumdog Millionaire. We had Wally. We had Dark Knight. Uh, Twilight did not win any Academy Awards, deservedly so. Um, but I would say that when you looked at the movie Twilight, uh, it was the most nominated movie and in fact, uh, I, I believe was the best picture win for the MTV Music Awards. So in other words, if you want to see where the generations are demographically in America, this was a huge, huge hit. There are going to be three sequels that are already uh, in the works. It was the seventh highest grossing film of 2008. Okay, can I just be blunt? The reason why he pre he's preaching uh, about movies is he's trying to be relevant so that he can grow his church. Plain and simple. That's it, it's all about putting butts in seats. That's what what it's all about. Okay. That being said, you're going to hear the gospel. I want you to listen carefully to this one. Bringing in 191 million dollars. Uh, this. Twilight is so popular among so many. Uh, let me rephrase that. So popular among women in America. And, uh, and, and it was written specifically for sort of the teen crowd, uh, teen to late teen crowd. But what's interesting is it has hit just a huge, huge broadband. I mean, uh, I was on an airplane coming back from Colorado this, uh, this last week. Something to keep in mind. The, uh, the Twilight stories were written by a Mormon. Should tell you something about the theology. And I'm walking the aisle and I see these Twilight books in like four or five different hands. And all of the ladies that were reading it were more like in the 40s and 50s category. So obviously this thing is, has uh, had just a, a bigger sort of a, an appeal. I do want to give a quick shout out to the gentlemen in the room who at some point have become Twilight widows. And you've lost your women as they have entered into this world. And so uh, actually the newsboys, when they were here, left me this mug. I don't know if you can read it, but it is, uh, it's pretty true. Edward ruined it for mortal men. <laughs> yeah, he screwed us up. And so we're going to figure out how to fix this thing. Uh, what I want to do is I want to simply unpack two elements that I think are platforms that are jumping off places to talk about biblical realities. So the first, if you're following along in your notes, is yes, you can overcome your sinful nature. And here's what I mean. The mythological premise in this book or in this movie is that there is a family of uber good-looking vampires... But they don't harm humans, and they don't sleep in coffins, they aren't associated with demons, and they don't despise God or the cross of Jesus. In fact, this family has covenanted together to rise above their base nature, and they act as a support to one another in order to live a life that is good or honorable or noble, in that they don't harm humans. It, would this be like a pack of uh, great white sharks deciding only to eat... Uh seaweed in fact uh, if you are familiar with this they they call themselves vegetarian vampires and 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 this is uh, uh they're vegetarians in that they don't eat people they just eat animals and uh, so point of clarity if you eat animals you're not called a vegetarian 
uh, you're called a carnivore. All right? I just want to make this very clear. Uh, if you choose to not eat people, uh, which would be a cannibal, but you just eat animals, you're a carnivore, not a vegetarian, right? And I just want you to know, I, I am in that carnivore camp. I personally feel that if God didn't want us to eat cows, he wouldn't have made them so delicious. Uh, but that's, that's just me. I just want to make sure you understand that that anyone, vampire or no, that chooses not to be a cannibal, but in fact to eat an animal, is a carnivore, not a vegetarian. And uh, I don't know why I'm making such a big deal about that. The point is you can rise above your base nature. You can overcome your sinful nature. And then the first lesson then that I would, again, use Twilight as a springboard for is the fact that there's power in community. Okay, now, this is one of the reasons why this is a mixed bag sermon. If And you got to be careful on this one because, okay, first of all, I consider this point to be not even a biblical point, and he's not really giving us a biblical reason for it. So apparently, uh, in community, you can overcome your sinful nature. Just my standard question comes to play here. Where does it teach that in the Bible? There's power in covenanting together. There's power in support. There's strength. There's courage. There's encouragement. There's, there's the, um, there's the, the, the uh, you know, almost the external structure and guiding force that we need to be better, to, to land higher, to, to walk stronger in terms of our potential when we come together in a group of like-minded people who all want the same goal, who all... Okay, well then I don't need... I mean, it doesn't have to be a Christian community. I can get that from Alcoholics Anonymous, don't you think? Or maybe I could get it from a uh, from a group of like-minded Buddhists. You know, I could even get that from a, 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 a an atheist support group that is uh, that is dedicated to doing good. Or I could get that from the Shriners. Or I could get that from the uh, from the Masons, who all are striving after their best. And we simply recognize that that is true in the Christian community. At Overlake Christian Church, you need to know that about half of our of what our church experience is happens here on a weekend. About half of what the church experience is is come here and have a, have a corporate worship experience where we open the Bible, we take a look at what it says. The other half, or more maybe, happens in life groups, in small group communities that are scattered all throughout the east side in Seattle, some of which happen here on our campus. But that idea of being in homes, doing life on life, being known and knowing, being loved and loving, being authentic and walking a road where together you're covenanted to pursue the very best of what God has for you, that's the rest of this church experience. And so we simply recognize that that's a, uh, that's a power. That's the way God has set it up. We also have at Overlake uh, many, many support groups. We recognize it's a fallen world. Some of us have deep brokenness that we need a special encouragement uh, in. And, and we have a program called Celebrate Recovery that happens on Tuesday night. And I would just love... To- <laughs> Going back to my point. So apparently these life groups are like, uh, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous. They're support groups to help you overcome your sinful nature. Oh, boy. 
to encourage you, everyone, if, if you are not currently in a life group, that you would take that step. If you think, you know what, I might need some extra help, or, you know, I have this issue uh, with, I struggle with alcoholism, or, I, you know what, this is a constant temptation, this issue of my life. I promise you we have a support group for it. We'd love to get you uh, in terms of... So church as a sin nature support, sin nature overcoming support group. The strength and support that you need. Now, I will tell you this. I feel like I'm preaching to the choir a little bit because honestly, at Overlake, we have so many folks that are in our groups, hundreds and hundreds of groups across the valley. I, I do also recognize that I'm speaking to what I would consider to be a common sense reality. Uh, friends, we just see, uh, when, when I talk about there being strength in community, and when you're isolated, you're more vulnerable, like you intrinsically, inherently understand that truth. You just know it to be true. Every time you've ever watched a Discovery Channel special, you know that there's... So the way we know that this point that you're making is true is because we intrinsically know it and because we see it on the Discovery Channel... Why don't you teach this from the Bible? I, aren't life groups taught in the Bible? Hmm? There's this herd of... By the way, they're not. ...of wildebeest. And then the one lone wildebeest off to the side, he has a name. His name is Lunch, right? You know what's going to happen to that wildebeest, right? He, the predator will come and that wildebeest will be destroyed because he strayed away from the herd. There was power and strength and protection and community, but in isolation, that's where, you know, the, the scary stuff happens. You ever watch a scary movie? Any scary movie you watch, it's when the teenager decides, oh, I'm going to go take care of this problem by myself, and he wanders off in the woods, and that's when the scary music starts. Friends, that's, that's the scary time, right? In isolation, that's where there is vulnerability. That's where we are easily tempted. That's where it's easiest to be discouraged or depressed. Or to believe the worst about yourself or to believe the worst about someone else. That's where you feel like it's so easy to focus on all the things that are wrong. All the things that are harmful. All the things that have hurt you and you, you're in isolation and you don't have a broader perspective. But in community you do. You have power. You have strength. You have encouragement and guidance. And this is what it says in the Bible. Proverbs 18.1 says, The man, the one who isolates himself, seeks his own desire. He rages against all sound judgment. And so my encouragement to you, if you're not in a group, get in a group. If you're in a group, my encouragement to you is that you would maximize it. Friends, stop playing around. Stop coming and giving the, the kind of the glossy surface answers, the, you know, speaking Christianese. Like really come and be who you are. Come and be authentic and be transparent. Come and be authentic. Come and be transparent. Come. Oh, man. Why don't you uh, open up your Bible, Pastor, and actually teach us something that's taught in God's Word? I, I understand it's pretty hard to do when you're teaching a sermon based upon the movie Twilight. By the way, you're going to hear the gospel. That's the funny thing. So let me point this out here. Um, point number one coming off of the movie Twilight is, is that we need a support group in order to overcome our sinful nature. And Nope, that doesn't work. Let's see what he does with point number two, though. By the way, you'll hear, you will hear the gospel. you got to trust me on this. But bring your strength to that group and receive its strength. And allow it to encourage you to overcome 
your sinful nature. There's power in community. But here's the point that I would land on. It's subpoint two. Only Jesus truly sets us free from our sinful nature. Now listen carefully. You're actually going to hear uh, law and gospel pretty decently done. Penal substitution here in point number two. So this is more than a gospel nugget. This is actual biblical gospel. But is it enough to save this sermon? Probably not, because you're going to find that the remaining points are disconnected from this one. It kind of just is a standalone kind of thing. And other points in the sermon that should be reconnecting to this don't. That's the problem here. Only Jesus truly sets us free. We, we might be able to willpower it for a while. But only Jesus truly changes our nature. It's only, he truly brings a deep freedom. And this is what the Bible says in Romans 8, verse 3 and following. It says, the law of Moses was unable to save us. The law, right, was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. So he gave his son, Jesus, as a sacrifice for our sins. And that's why we celebrate on the cross, Jesus died. We recognize how substitutionary that whole experience was. His life was lived in perfection. Ours is not. He died a sinful death so that we don't have to, a sinner's death. And then on the cross, he takes our sin from us and he gives us his righteousness. All of that is substitutionary. It's a trade. And what happens in that process is something inside of us is transformed. We recognize that we're not sinners as our identity anymore. You know, we, we talk about this a lot that because we live in a fallen world, we just recognize we are sinful by choice and by birth. That it just seems to be the river that we run in. That's just how we're wired. But because of Jesus Christ, what happens is something fundamental changes about us at, at a, a very deep level. What is most true about us is not our sin anymore. Okay, this is the reason why we're having problems here. By the way, we heard the gospel. I want to point that out. You heard it. Penal substitution and everything. We receive his righteousness, all of that kind of stuff. Now we're freewheeling. We're no longer talking in biblical language here because now he's saying that the thing that's most real about us and all that kind of stuff, what is that? By the way, the biblical position regarding Christians post Conversion, post-regeneration, is found in Romans chapter uh, is Romans chapter 7. Okay? Paul says, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I don't want to do, I, or the things I want to do, I don't do. Who's going to rescue me from this body of sin? The biblical teaching regarding Christians post, uh, post-conversion is that we are simul justus et peccator. That's the Latin for it. And it means that we are simultaneously justified, which means to be declared righteous on account of Christ, and we are sinners at the same time. So simultaneously justified and sinners at the same time. Or John, the way he phrases it in his uh, first epistle is, is that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Or you can talk about the fact that we Christians fall short on a daily basis, so much so, so, so much so that we are taught in uh, by Jesus Christ himself to pray on a daily basis in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So we are sinner and saint, declared to be righteous and still have our sinful nature to deal with until the day in which Christ raises us from the dead in glory, and we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. That's not what I'm hearing in this sermon, by the way. What is most true about us, if we step across the line and we place our faith in Christ, is that we are his. That we're God's son or God's daughter. Our identity now is wrapped up in Christ, and when God looks at us, he sees us through the lens of his son. So that has changed. Okay, this is a weird, weird, I would almost argue unbiblical uh, teaching regarding imputed righteousness. Because he's not really teaching imputed righteousness. It, this is something different. That's transformed. And then this is what happens. Romans eight twelve says, Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. You're set free. You have no obligation anymore. You're not bound to it by birth. You're not bound to it by choice. But there is a true freedom at at the very core of who you are. So I don't know what issue it is that you keep wrestling against. I don't know where it is that you keep stumbling or tripping over. I I don't know where the stresses come in your life. I don't know where the anxiety comes where the fear, all I know is that when you place your... And when you trust, here's the deal. Yeah, you sin daily and you sin much. Receive the forgiveness of sins won by Christ and his death for you on the cross. That would be the right use of that vicarious uh, penal substitutionary atonement. Although there's something else working here under the hood. It'll, be, it'll become more clear as the sermon develops. Yourself in Jesus, something has now fundamentally been transformed about you. And you don't have to strive to overcome your sinful nature. It will take work and it will take intentionality. But the truth of the matter is that you have been changed by Christ. And the Bible talks about it with many different metaphors. One is, it says, the old is gone, the new has come. That in Christ we are a new creation and literally born anew. Another metaphor used in the Old Testament talks about how God takes away our heart of stone and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. Many different metaphors, but the truth is it's only Christ who can set us free. It's only Jesus who transforms that which is most true about us. And and he makes us his sons or his daughters. This is what it says in Romans 8.15. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, which means daddy. It's very familiar. Father. Okay. So in Christ, we're new. Now, you might be here. You might be a follower of Jesus Christ. And you might know that you've not been living new. We just recognize that, don't we? You look across. Yeah, that would include you and me, Pastor. Every time we sin, we're, quote, not living new. America today, and you see all sorts of people who say they're following Jesus, who identify with the, uh, with the theological tenets of the faith, but they're still living old. 
They're, they're still living the old way, the old man. That would include you and me because we still sin daily and sin much. Man, they're still living bound up in their sinful nature. And I, I simply recognize that. That's one of the, the main reasons why those who don't believe in Jesus have a tough time believing in Jesus because they don't see that there's this fundamental shift. Well, if that's the case, then you're not preaching the gospel right because the gospel isn't that... Uh, when you become a Christian, you'll be transformed into a sinless saint. It's that Christ forgives sinners and he died for their sins on the cross. Read Romans 7. But what I want to say to you today, and this is for those specifically who are in Christ, who are living the old way, I just want to say to you, you don't have to live that way anymore. The Bible says you are under no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. Yeah, but what if you did? Did Christ die for that? And this, friends, is where the real battle is fought. When the, when the temptation comes, when, when uh, you know, there are these whispers in our mind, uh, we don't have to receive them. We literally, because we're now God's son, God's daughter, we can reject them in the power that Jesus Christ gives us because he has planted his spirit in our lives. We're not helpless in this battle. And so if you, if you hear, and, and maybe the temptation comes in your mind and it's like, uh, it's discouragement, say. What, the, what, huh? The temptation of what? Discouragement? Which of the Ten Commandments does that one break? And it just comes in, and you look at the front page again, you think about where your finances are, you just, you just, it's discouragement that comes in. And then there's fear wrapped up in the discouragement, and, and you don't even recognize that. That's a temptation. See, the Bible just said, we just read it, God's not giving you a spirit of fear. But you don't even recognize that that's the temptation, so you don't recognize that that's a part of the battle. And so you begin to live out of the old way, and, and because you're just you're accepting that lie in your life, now you're going to live in fear and discouragement. What, huh? You just explained that Christ died for our sins, and apparently if we have discouragement because our economic situation is bad and... Um, the news is bad that, and we feel discouraged that that's where Satan is battling us. What? But you don't have to. You don't have the spirit of fear. You have the spirit of a son, the spirit of a daughter. Oh, this is sounding like it's been influenced by Joel Osteen. Oh boy, we're off on the wrong. Um, you heard the gospel though. Yay. Something has been profoundly changed in you and the circumstances of this life, while they are important and while they come to bear, they are no longer most important. And suddenly you recognize that there is a peace about where you are. There's a peace about who you are. You don't have to look at achievements to define yourself because you are defined by God. Does that make sense? And so, and you can extrapolate that, you know, kind of any direction you want to go. I'll share with you a story. A very dear friend of mine who loves Jesus with all of his heart and he loves his wife and he's a great dad to his kids. He brings the very best of creativity and passion to bear for the kingdom of God. And he shares with me this week that he feels like a total failure. Maybe the reason he feels that way is because he's a sinner and he knows what that God's law demands perfect obedience and that he hasn't 
been perfectly obedient in any area of his life. He needs to hear about the forgiveness of sins when by Christ on the cross and that Christ even died for those sins. Failure as a dad, failure as a husband, failure as a provider. Maybe he has been. Failure, you know, in, in terms of what he wants to accomplish in this life. He just goes down the list. He just hears failure, failure, failure. And so with him privately, I just said, don't you get that's where the battle is? That's not true. No, if he is sinning, that is true. And he needs to confess his sins and be absolved and hear that Christ has forgiven him of those sins. Why aren't we coming back to that penal substitutionary point that you made, point two, regarding the cross and Christ's righteousness? That's a lie. That's, that's a whisper of the enemy that has come in to, to cause you to forget that you are a son. That God has changed something profoundly about you. You are not a failure. No, you are a victor because of what Jesus Christ... Oh, this sounds like Joel Osteen. This, I... Oh, boy, this is not good. All this from the Twilight movie? Christ has accomplished on the cross. You walk in that way. And, and, and so we pray the fullness of Christ's victory over you. And, and we want the very, very best for each one of you to walk in that kind of power and that kind of understanding as you walk with God. I want to tell you, thank you, Overlake, uh, for last weekend. Overlake, you gave me a gift that in 19 years of ministry I've never received. And that is, you let me go to this retreat in Colorado where the only purpose that I had was to do soul work before God. So I've been to a lot of conferences. I've done a lot of retreats and in all sorts of different contexts throughout the years. And I want to tell you that every time I went to one of those conferences or one of those retreats, I was taking notes like crazy. I was sharpening my skills. I, I, I couldn't learn enough because I wanted to bring back all of that learning and share it all with you. But this last weekend, I, I didn't really think about you at all. No offense, right? I, it wasn't for that purpose. It was just for me to discover my heart, and to see that God has made it alive and to recognize that I am made to be free. See, I'm free in Christ. Now, I've preached that hundreds of times. I know all the verses in Scripture. We'll take a look at two of them in just a second. But the point of the matter is you have to not just know this stuff here, You've got to appropriate it in your life. You've got to pray it in. You've got to place it in the very core of who you are. You are a son or a daughter of the king. And you don't... you got to pray it in? Why does it sound like this guy's come under the influence of the prosperity heresy, the word faith movement? You don't walk in fear because you're not a slave. You walk as his son. You walk as his daughter. You are a new creation. You don't have a heart of stone anymore. You've got a heart of flesh. And you can overcome your sinful nature, not on your own strength, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Take a look at those verses on your outline. Uh, one of them talks about the Spirit of the Lord. The Lord is Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
This next verse are the words of Jesus Christ himself. He talks about who the Son sets free is free indeed. Okay, If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And so, yes, your sinful nature can be overcome. Yes, there's power in community. And yes, it's Jesus Christ who sets you free. And you might be scratching your head saying, you got all that from the movie Twilight? Yeah, that's what I'm doing. Not exactly. Uh, but what I use is a parable in the community. I use a language that the culture is speaking about in order to point to a higher, deeper truth. Okay, that's the first, is you can overcome your sinful nature. The second truth is, yes, love really can be that good. Love really can be that good. Uh, let, let me, again, refer to the movie. The tension in the story is that there is this love, this romance that is birthed. Uh, Edward is the name of the, you know, uh, uh, excuse me, the vegetarian vampire with smoldering eyes, right? And then Bella is the name of this clumsy, beautiful girl who is super smart vampire food, okay? And that is the setting. And, and suddenly then this, this love, this romance is impossible. It is mythic in nature. It is Romeo and Juliet uh, times ten. And as I thought about the movie and I thought about its popularity in our culture, and even I, I spoke with several uh, women who had really enjoyed this series and about what they had uh, enjoyed so much about it. Here, this theme kept coming up again and again. And the, the theme was that this guy, Edward, loved Bella like women dream about being loved. You know, when a little girl grows up and she thinks about her knight in shining armor, and she, she has all of these dreams and fantasies about how this man will enter her life and bring protection and bring care and comfort and, and bring uh, this, this idea of being swept off of her feet into an adventure that is so much larger, so much bigger than just who she is, so much, so much grander than just the two of them. And Edward provides all of these things. I just made a quick list. His love for Bella is selfless. It is sacrificial. It is chaste. It is infinitely patient. It is protecting it is unending. And that might be because he's like 108 years old, so he can afford to take the long view. I don't know. But what it seems to me is you look at this guy and the way that he loves Bella, and you start to get the impression that this love is not about what he can receive, but it's about what he can give. And you see her response is almost identical. See, this is the way that we long to be loved. I was reading several different reviews this week, and uh, here's one from Christianity Today. It says, Bella and Edward show us a type of romantic love that's powerful, passionate, and perfect. They're ready to sacrifice anything for each other. They always try to act in the other's best interest. They're thrilled to simply be in each other's presence. Bella and Edward, uh, their relationship exemplifies a lot of what the Bible says love should be. Here are a couple of quotes. Uh, think about the Bible's description. Love is patient. Love is kind. 
Or Jesus' words, greater love has no one than this, than he laid down his life for his friends. Of course, no real couple can be perfect all the time. But these passages and stories like Bella and Edwards remind us of the perfect love that God has for us. God intends romantic love to reflect his deep desire for an intimate relationship with each one of us. The Bible even calls us his bride. What I'd love to do is I'd love for us to focus on the words of Scripture and see what it is that the Bible says about love. And as we take a look at this passage, some of you in this room, you've heard this paragraph maybe 500 times in your life. But what I want you to do is I want you to look at it through eyes of intentionality. In other words, what makes this passage unique? What is it about this passage that that is so striking, kind of over and above what the cultural view of love might say? Here it is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. As I read that this week, I thought two things. The first thing that I noticed is just how selfless that passage is. The second thing I noticed is how absolutely countercultural it seems to be. You know, the message, I will wait for you, The message, I will wait until we're married to be physically intimate with you. The message, I will be patient for as long as it is required. We just don't hear that kind of love in our culture. Uh, Most of what passes for love in our culture isn't love at all. It's just lust, right? And so, so many, of the, uh, so many of the songs that are played on the radio, and I don't even know what station they might be played on, because honestly, I cannot handle the DJs on love song stations. They just, they drive me nuts. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, it's just the super soothe, soothing voice, like, you know, Kendra, this one goes out to you from Larry and Renton. <laughs> yeah. He's so sorry that he set your couch on fire. And if you just say yes to him, he'll be everything a man should be and more. (laughs) You know, all of the songs that you hear, it's like, I need you. I want you. I can't live without you. Everything is just self-referential, right? It's all about me. Not about you at all. It's about how you make me feel. Isn't that even a song? You made me feel. And and that's the irony about a lot of these seeker-driven sermons. They're so self-focused, so self-referential. Right? You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) Like a natural woman. (laughs) Kind of lost my place here. 
In the writings of the New Testament by Luke Johnson, we read this. The highest expression of the Spirit is self-sacrificing love, which is agape. That's the, the word, the Greek word that's used in this passage. In contrast to passionate love, which is eros, a drive that seeks the other in order to fulfill the self, agape means having the disposition toward the other that God first had towards them. So agape, this kind of unconditional, it's unending, it's sacrificial, selfless. When you have this kind of love for another human being, what what Johnson's saying is that that kind of selfless love for another human being reflects the love that God has had for you. That's what he's saying. God has loved you with that kind of love, and then when you have that for someone else, you're just... You're giving God the honor that that's the way that he loves. It's totally countercultural. So much of what we see in our culture, on movies, television, the stories that we hear, read about, etc., it's not love, it's lust. And, and the story much more goes like this. Boy meets girl, boy sleeps with girl, boy figures out if he wants to hang out with girl the next day. That's not love. It's self-love and hormones. That's it. This will be a good time to talk about the sin in, of that right there and, again, reiterate Christ's forgiveness. And no girl I know wants to be swept up into that kind of a shallow, self-referential love. And, and what was amazing about this love that, that Edward and Bella share is that it gets profoundly popular, that this is explosive, that there are so many women especially who just recognize this is what my heart really longs for. This is what I got into the love game in the beginning for. This was the way that we used to date. This is what our courtship was like. He would stay up all night talking to me on the phone. She didn't know he was asleep on the other end of the phone. Uh, <laughs> She didn't realize that 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 wasn't going to continue, that the energy to sustain that kind of love wasn't really his, that he was bringing to the table. He wasn't bringing strength to the table. He He wasn't bringing selflessness to the table. He was just bringing conquest. And then once he had the conquest, he he didn't really care about following through on this kind of love. Can we talk about the sin of that? Can we talk about the sin of that? The yearning of so many hearts. And what I want to say to you today is you and I, we can love like this. Love is patient. It's not impatient. Love is kind. You know, mean-spirited, controlling, manipulative. Those are all real things. They're just not love. Right? Love does not envy. Some of your translations might say love is not jealous. I know that that has been a point of confusion for many people, right? You, you hear love is not jealous, but in the Old Testament it says God is a jealous God, and we read that God is love. And so how could God be a jealous God and love, and yet love uh, does not, is not jealous? It doesn't make sense. And I know it's confused many people, uh, specifically Oprah, right? This is where she got tripped up. And so if you're friends with Oprah, you're hanging out with Oprah, you need to tell her this. She got it wrong, okay? Uh, she was listening to some preacher talk about how God is a jealous God, and she thought, wait a sec, God is jealous? God's jealous of me? That sounds so petty. There's no way that God could be jealous of me. And so she kind of walked away from her faith and the, and the Christianity of her youth. 
I, I just want to say it's bad exegesis. God is not jealous of you. When this is lo- <clears throat> bad exegesis, <clears throat> well, there's the pot calling the kettle black. Uh-huh. Love does not envy this agape love. It, it's not uh, being jealous of something, being jealous of somebody, being jealous of success or being jealous of uh, your potential being reached. I mean, I, I have many friends who are. Jealous of success or jealous of my potential being reached? This is not biblical Christianity. What is this? We're pastors. And I love these guys. And I know they love me. And so when I hear about good things in their context, in their ministry, I celebrate for them. I'm not jealous of them. And when they hear about good things happening at Overlake, how Overlake just really seems like we're in a season of blessing and God's doing awesome things, lives being transformed. They're not jealous of that success. They're not jealous of me. They celebrate with me, right? Love does not covet in that kind of a context. But what is important, and you need to make sure you, you don't miss this, love doesn't covet, love covenants. It covenants together. And so you recognize the whole Bible is a story of God wanting to covenant with us in love. The Bible is broken into two, two sections. It's called the Old Testament, the New Testament. You could also translate that Old Covenant or New Covenant. God is a covenantal God. And if you don't know really easily what covenant means, it means it's very similar to that of marriage. The idea of coming together and covenanting hearts and affections, covenanting lives together. That's what it, that's what it is. And so in that context, you simply reckon, oh, I get it. So God wants to covenant in love with me. God has already settled the issue. His love is eternal for me. I look at my love. I see it's rather temporary for God. Sometimes I'm feeling it. Sometimes I'm not, right? You see, God, God's love is, it's absolute, it's unending. You look at your love, you say, oh, my love might last uh, for a while, it might not. God's love for you is secure, and yet you look at your love for God, you recognize not only... Can we give a concrete example of how God's love for us is secure? Coming back to the cross, where God demonstrates his own love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. Got to give me a concrete example of Christ, of God's unending love. It's all on Christ and what he's done. Do I love God and worship God sometimes, but I also look at all these other things that I give my heart to, my worship to, and you simply recognize that the list of other gods, false gods, is quite long. For example, power, money, fame, self, relationships, pleasure, control, adolescence, beauty, and the list could go on and on and on. And so you simply recognize that God is not jealous of false gods. God is not jealous of you. He's jealous for you. In this covenant of love, he's jealous for you for your affection, for your worship. He's jealous for you. My relationship with my wife, Jody, we've been married 12 years. We covenanted together. So we're going to do this thing together. We're going to love one another. We're going to, we're going to be exclusive in our love for one another. That's a part of the covenant. 
that I expect, I have certain expectations of how my wife lives out her covenant of love with me, that she doesn't share the affection that she has for me, she doesn't share it with other guys. That, that there is a singularity there. The communication looks different. The way that we communicate to one another, I expect that it's different the way that Jody communicates to me than the way she communicates to other people. There's, there's this, these expectations, right? And Jody has the same kinds of expectations over me. Why? Because there's this covenant of love. We've given everything to one another. We're walking in love and unity. So yes, there's a covenantal relationship. Jody expects for me to share my affection with her and no one else. And God forbid, I mean, if this ever were to happen, that I would ever stray on my wife Jody, I can promise you she wouldn't divorce me. I'd put my money on murder, right? Like, I, I just, I recognize, <laughs> and that's a joke, I hope, uh, but I won't test it. Like, uh, I, I just I want you to understand that the idea of Two people in this covenantal bond of love, it's not jealousy of. I'm not jealous of Jody. She's not jealous of me. We're jealous for each other. We love each other. There's this unity there and a love there and a blessing there. Why? Because we've covenanted together. It's the same way with God. Love does not covet. Love covenants together. Could you give me some examples of uh, these God's God's covenants? This would be a good place to like open up the Bible and talk about such things because you can. Love always protects, protects the other. You know, I I know some examples of couples who've been married years and years and years and they protect one another. They always have the other one's back. They're always speaking good about the other one. They're always building the other one up in other people's presence and when it's just the two of them. I I know couples like that. And I also know couples that don't protect each other at all. I know couples that run each other down. I know couples where that's just the language that's used. Do you see, what is love? Love protects. Can we pull this back to the cross? I mean... It was a, at least a point in the sermon. I agree it was a sub-point, but, you know, don't you think this love thing can actually relate back to the cross? Love hopes, always hopes for the best, always hopes for the highest, always hopes for, for someone to walk into the very the pinnacle of their potential. Love hopes for that. And love perseveres. Love hangs on. Love, love hangs in there. And one of the reasons why we thought this would be a great day to have this message is because we do recognize that at its very highest, and again, I recognize we're in a fallen world, so not everybody gets this experience, but at its very highest, this is a picture of what motherly love should be like. And some of you, if you've had a great mom, and she's really been on her game, and she really knew who she was, and and she wasn't looking to you to prove her validation, but she just was secure in who she was, she was free to love you, then you know that that she probably was a mom who exuded this kind of love. She believed the best about you. She kept picking you up when you fell. She had patience with you. That she she was able to be there, persevere when you're on this emotional roller coaster. She stuck in with you. You just recognize the highest part of what a mom does is, is she prays for her kids consistently. That she waits up for her kids, that she worries over her kids, that she... 
what does this have to do with Twilight or the Bible again? I am so confused. We are just, is he preaching this stream of consciousness? He is constantly there communicating love. And I just, I recognize not everybody gets that. But if you're a mom here and that's not the way that you have been living, I just want to say that you can commit yourself anew in that regard. Law, where's the gospel again? I mean, uh, in fact, that's the, the last sub point here. Commit your love anew. If you are married, this is a slam dunk for you. Just even right now, I just squeeze the arm of your loved one and say, you know what? I love you today. Find a, find a sunshine picnic area and just communicate your love. At Overlake Christian Church, we try to connect with as many different opportunities as possible to see married couples really be able to renew their covenants together. And so a lot of opportunities for that. Uh, if you're looking for a way, to really maybe a counselor or somebody you know personally to meet with, we've got a, several lay counseling opportunities. We refer to professional counselors. We also partner with uh, Stronger Families, and it's just an opportunity to do different events which really uh, encourage and motivate a healthy context of marriage based on love that we've been talking about. You might be here and you might not be married. And so the, the question is, well, who do I renew my love to? Friends, this passage of Scripture does not refer to romantic love. This passage of Scripture refers to unconditional love. This is the love that God has for us. We're to share it. So in your life, it might be family members. It might be friends that have been with you for a long season. Why am I committing myself to love again? I um, uh, nice uh, greeting card sentimentality. I have no idea what this has to do with the Bible, the cross, or even the movie Twilight. Uh. But my challenge is that you would commit your love, that you would express this love that God has, and then why is it that when these pastors say, "My challenge to you," my yeah. <sighs> Again, it just feels like I'm pulling myself up by my bootstrap. It's all about things I have to do. We did hear the gospel, though. It was sub point one or two under point number one. The last sub point here is that we recognize only Jesus consistently loves like this. His love. Oh, good. A little more Jesus. Thank God. Love conquers all. 1 Corinthians 13.8 says, love never fails. And I would simply say... That, that's all you had to say about Jesus? Please tell me you're going to tell me more. Maybe you will. Let's see. It's Jesus' love that never fails. Jesus never fails us. And that is the truth. Jesus' love never fails us. It's the longing of our hearts to be loved to recognize that we don't have to look. Can we talk about what Jesus did? Can you show us how his love never fails us? From the Bible, you know. Look anywhere else for our identity. We don't have to get the question that our hearts have. Do I have what it takes? Am I worth anything? What is my value? All of these questions, God himself answers it by loving us perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. And I can say this honestly, Jesus' love for you is selfless. Jesus' love for you 
is sacrificial. Jesus' love for you is infinitely patient. His love for you is... This is all true. Again, here, we, you know, it sounds like we're going to end on, an, on a positive note here. ...is protecting. His love for you is unending. It's unending. You don't have to look to some fictional character to find the kind of love that Jesus is pouring out on you today. There's a, a, a verse, it's Romans 8, 38, 39. It talks about how nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Pastor Jesse wrote a song about this, and the song is, uh, it's actually one of the songs on this new kids' worship album that came out. It talks about nothing can separate us, a whole list of things that come into our lives, things that are a part of this fallen world, but nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Yeah, you want an emotional experience, you listen to the kids singing that song, a whole chorus of kids just singing. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's profound. You're going to want to buy a copy of that. You're going to want to buy 10 copies. You know what? This is a commercial? You're at... Oh. Because my daughter sings on that CD, you're going to want to buy 40 copies of that, give them out to grandparents and friends and... At least I will. I want to tell you, Jesus loves you. And you might be here, and you're already a follower of Jesus Christ, and you know what? For you, you know it right here, right? You got it. Yeah, I got it, Mike. That's the truth. I've heard it. Got it. I wonder what it would take for you to move it from here to here. Law, this is something you have to do. Uh, hey, um, Mike, um, how are you doing on that? By the way, the law demands perfect obedience, perfect love, perfect love for God and perfectly loving our neighbor as ourself. That's the standard. How are you holding up? How's that working out for you? I mean, if you're telling me the things I have to do rather than the things Jesus has done for me, uh, then you're basically just giving me a really bad application of the law. And you're really just condemning me. And you're condemning yourself in the process, too. I, I just wonder, today, we're going to have an opportunity to come to the table and to participate in communion together. And that's just a remembrance of the time when Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed for us. on the Gospel nugget. On the cross. And before you do that, I would just encourage you, would you spend some time taking it from here to here? You take some time taking it from here to here. How, how do I move it? I think he's pointing to his head and then to his heart. How am I supposed to move it from my head to my heart? Um, do I use a spoon, a spatula, a rubber band? Uh, do I meditate on my navel? What, I mean, how, and just whatever you need to do. Uh, for you, you might want to confess some things. Maybe for you, you might want to ask Jesus, Jesus, would you show me where I've been believing the lie? <laughs> Pastor, isn't that your job to show them that? I mean, from God's word with, you know, what the lies are and whatnot. Oh, man. <clears throat> Frustrated. Where I've been giving in to discouragement, where I've been walking in fear. Where... Giving in to discouragement. Yeah, Lord, show me where I've been giving into discouragement. No. Where I've been living in despair. 
where I've been agreeing with voices that say, you know, you're a failure. You're not, you're not up to your game. Uh, you don't have value. Can you list some real sins, please? Some real ones, you know, real transgressions that Christ really died for? You just spend some time and just appropriate the truth, which is that you are no longer a slave, but you are a son or a daughter. And you can approach the throne. Rather than appropriating the grace of God and Christ's death on the cross for our sins, I'm just supposed to think this happy, wonderful thought that I'm a son or daughter of the king. To overcome my despair and discouragement, I feel better already. With confidence today, knowing that his love identifies you. His love gives you value. And if you're here today and you've never said yes to a relationship of love with Jesus, oh, I'd love it if today you would simply step across the line and say, I'm in. I'm in. I'd like to receive that kind of love. I'd like to begin today this covenant relationship with God. There's a verse on your outline. It's from Titus. What am I signing up for again if I cross that line? Titus, chapter 2, verse 14. It says, he, meaning Jesus, gave his life to free us from every kind of sin. Right? Okay, more gospel. I'm telling you, I I told you you'd hear the gospel in this thing. The thing is, it's not really well appropriated or applied. To cleanse us. And to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. Here's what you need to know about Jesus. Jesus loves you. Jesus forgives you. Jesus sets you free. Jesus came. What about the people in the church already, who the ones who are falling short of uh, and committing the sins that you're, well, his despair is? Notice the forgiveness of sins is being offered to the guy who wandered into the church that day and potentially heard this message and maybe isn't a Christian. But what about the Christians who sinned? To seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus comes not to condemn you, but to save you. Jesus wants you to know that he is for you. And his love conquers all. Ending on a gospel note. Not to everybody, but to the person who hasn't already made the decision to cross the line and say, I'm in. So let's pray together. Done. (laughs) Yeah, that was a mixed bag. Just an absolute mixed bag. Got to give him props, though, for preaching the gospel. I heard it. But then again, I... It kind of got snatched away with the other points that he was making. And the other points were really convoluted. Why? Well, probably because he wasn't actually teaching on a biblical text. He was trying to delve deep into the spiritual meaning of the movie Twilight because it's so relevant. And by preaching relevant sermons, I can put people's seats in the seat. Seats. Well, well, you know what I mean. (laughs) Fill those empty seats and keep growing. Woohoo. Um. But then again, we did hear the gospel. So, again, mixed bag. Really some poor stuff. Enough confusion to basically make me say, this is not a safe church to stick around. 
if you really want to be taught sound biblical doctrine that truly centers on Christ and him crucified for our sins, probably not a good good idea to stay at this church. And uh, yeah, you, yeah, just saying. All right, we are rapidly approaching the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And as always, I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. And we depend upon your generous contributions and gifts in order to continue to bring this radio ministry to you. You can support us a few ways. The simple way is to visit fightingforthefaith.com and click on Join Our Crew. That's right, Join Our Crew. It's a mere $6.95 a month. And we're looking for a 1,000 of our listeners to join our crew as we approach the end of the year. This is a perfect time for you to be doing this. And you and, and doing so, when we get to a 1,000 listeners, it sure is that at least on a minimum basis, we're able to pay our bills. Kind of an important thing if we want to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith and, well, Pirate Christian Radio to you. So click on Join Our Crew. Or if you'd like to donate a flat amount, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or... Mailing your gift in to Fighting for the Faith at Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Well, folks, we are at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Covered some very interesting stuff today uh, on uh, law and gospel, the two kingdoms, and how it relates to the Manhattan Declaration. And uh, and then this uh, relevant sermon on Twilight. If you would like to uh, send me your feedback uh, regarding anything we discussed on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, the easiest way to do so is to email me at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or if you'd like, you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. I'm a generally friendly guy there. Uh, Facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there again, pirate Christian. Until next time, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross, even for a wretched sinner as you or me. Amen. <laughs>